Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look this morning at verses 4 through 6 as we continue in our series in Exodus free at last. As we look at each of the Ten Commandments, listen to the word of the Lord in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we now, each one of us, including the one speaking, sits under the authority of your word, I pray that you would do that work in us through the power of the Spirit by your word. Conform us into the image, Father, of your Son, And our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, My uh, older son uh, is a great artist. Uh, He can can draw uh, very well. He also happens to be a good musician, uh, showing a great uh, deal of ability on the guitar. And what he can do with his hands, what he can do with his hands uh, in both of these areas, both in drawing and playing, has often filled me with uh, wonder, not just at his abilities, but in the creativity that God has placed in the hands of human beings, human beings that he has created in his image and after his likeness, the things that human beings can do with their hands in, uh, in molding and shaping God's creation can and does at times demonstrate the glory that God has given to the human community created in his image. Human beings can do with their hands things that bring glory to God and good to the creation and to the human community. Yet those same hands due to the sin that is now in us, can do immeasurable harm, immeasurable damage, immeasurable destruction. And that harm often begins in the place where our sin begins, in rebellion toward the God who created us. In addition to worshiping a created thing over God, idolatry includes the added folly of worshiping a created thing which we have molded and given shape to with our hands. The the created thing has uh, no real power other than that, uh, that given to it by the one who shapes it. Isaiah Uh, In Isaiah, we are given a detailed picture of this folly by the Lord himself who declares through Isaiah, the ironsmith uh, takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He he fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He makes it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. 
He, he takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the uh, other half he eats meat. He roasts and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worship it, worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. The, the whole project is ridiculous. It's a fairy tale. It's human beings taking their God-given creativity in an attempt to dethrone God from their lives to create a God that they can control, a God who will give them what they want, a God they can manipulate. And so what God is communicating in the second word, this second commandment, is that he, uh, he as God is not in his people's hands. He is not in their ability to form, fashion, or shape to their own ends. He, he is not their creation. They are his creation. He, he is not in their hands. They are in his hands. He created their hands, and, and those hands are never to be used to try to fit God into their framework, into their plans, into their ideas, into their ways, into their desires. You see, idolatry wasn't just about the carved image, but it was about the beliefs and the practices and the customs that were built up around that image that gave life, gave it life in people's lives. This wasn't just about refusing to engage in the physical bowing down to an image, but to the giving over of oneself in that worship to all that was required in terms of how people lived their lives. And here's what we now know as Christians, as people who have our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who have cast our hopes on Jesus. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. God's glory isn't in the images we create with our own hands. God's glory is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He, the Lord Jesus, as Colossians says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God isn't in what we make with our hands. He is visible in all his fullness in Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the Son of God who is God in the flesh. You want to see God's image, then look at it as it is represented to us in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in the Scriptures. Amen, people of God. So why does God then call us away from idol-making? Why does he call us away from idol-making? Well, he calls us away from idol-making, first, first of all, brothers and sisters, uh, to protect the created order of things. Listen again to verses 4 through 5a. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Note that in, in, in these verses, God not only prohibits the crafting of an image, but the worship of it as well. 
The prohibition, of course, is universal in its scope. Don't make an image of anything in the heavens or in the earth or, on the, or in the waters. And as, you, and as, as one reads, you, you cannot help but think back to Genesis 1, the Genesis 1 narrative. And that narrative, God who is outside of the creation, brings into existence through his words alone the whole of creation. Out of nothing, God creates everything that is. Everything is put into its place according to God's sovereign purpose and plan. Everything is given purpose by God in its place. And within this created order, God, for his own glory, creates human beings and gives to them what he had given to no other creature, the privilege of bearing his image within creation. Human beings are granted the privilege of ruling over what God created. They're given the privilege of stewarding it such that it would reflect back to God the praise and glory that he so richly deserves. And this privilege and purpose was given all of grace. Not because human beings deserved it, but because God delights in lavishing upon his creation what is good. Indeed, the end of each day of creation is concluded with that blessed pronouncement, and it was good. So what then is idol making? It is the distortion, the corruption, the turning on its head of all that God purposed in the created order of things. It is human beings trying first to bring God, who is wholly other and outside of the creation, into creation. Whether it is the creation of an image to worship a false god or the creation of an image as a means of worshiping the true God, human beings through idolatry try to bring God into the created order, into the space where they can manipulate and control, where they can shape and mold God to their own image to their own ends. But there is no other God than our God, and the true God cannot be manipulated, and He cannot be controlled by human hands. He cannot be created. He cannot be copied. He cannot be compared to anything in the created order. He is everything we read in the confession that we read last week and beyond. He is infinite in being and perfection. He is a most pure spirit. He is invisible without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. He is who he will proclaim himself to Moses to be in chapter 34. He is the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. We'll talk about that phrase in verse 7 in a minute, in verse 6 in a minute, because it's found uh, in this passage as well. But we cannot, but God cannot be brought into the created order such that we can manipulate or control him. And that is exactly what idolatry tries to do. Centuries later, Paul in a speech in Athens would make this very point to his listeners. After seeing all the idols in the city and being troubled and provoked in his spirit by it, Paul says to his listeners, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so God's prohibition at Sinai was meant 
to train his people in this truth. There is no other God other than the true God, and he cannot be created. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled by our hands. The other side, of course, of the distortion of the created order is that in idol-making, created things are removed from their God-given purpose and elevated to a purpose that God did not intend. And the worst part of this distortion is that human beings who were meant to be God's image bearers become subservient to things over which they were meant to rule for God's glory. You, You shall not bow down to them or worship them or serve them, not only functions as a, as a command, but as a description of what is happening all around Israel and within, within Israel. Indeed, as I said last week, uh, Israel throughout the biblical story will struggle with this very thing. And you only have to read the creation narrative to appreciate the absurdity of this reversal. Rather than ruling over the creation for God's glory, human beings make images of the creation to whom they bow down and serve. And because the creation was created to be served, uh, because the creation wasn't created to be served, the fallout of this worship, this distortion of the created order of things, it can be felt all around us. Human beings worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator have given them given themselves over to all kinds of evil in the world, evil that spares no one its impact as people all over the world become both the perpetrators and the victims of this reversal. But thank God for his steadfast love and faithfulness. For in the incarnation, God does something wonderful. He takes on our humanity in Jesus in order that he might deliver us from this absurdity that we, that, 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 that we, that we have given ourselves over to in our sin. In Jesus, we see what we are all meant to be in our humanity in service to God and in relationship to the creation. For Jesus doesn't bow down to the material world or serve it, but stores it to the glory of God and the good of man. He doesn't bow down to bread, but he gives, gives bread away so others can eat. He doesn't bow down to money, but he encourages money to be given away so that the poor might be delivered from their poverty. He doesn't bow down to people, but uses his power to heal people who have been broken by all of life's circumstances. But more than this, in his humanity, he lays down his life for all who believe, paying the penalty for their sin in sacrificial love to bring them back to God and back to their created purpose. And so the call, brothers and sisters, is to commit ourselves to our created purpose, the purpose for which Jesus brought us back to God. Thus, we are to resist elevating anything above God, but rather live in worship and praise to the only true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in our relationship with the created order, we are to steward it toward its proper end, not bow down and worship it. And the practical question this presents to us is what are we making with our hands? What are we making with our hands? While we we might not be prone in this culture to making actual images of false gods, we are prone still to using our hands to secure the objects of our worship. 
Our, our hands, our hands can still literally and figuratively be used to secure the things we worship. We use our hands to peruse the internet, looking for sexually inappropriate images and videos. We can use our hands to fuel our greed, storing up more and more goods into our barns rather than giving them away for the good of others. We can use our hands to threaten others, gaining a perverse power through the threat of violence. Sex and money and power are common objects of worship, which we use our hands to secure outside of God's purpose and plan for us in those things. We can do, we, we can and we do at times elevate those things over God and place ourselves under them as servants. Jesus has come and freed us from this distorted order of things. And through the power of the Spirit, he enables us to use our hands to worship God and steward God's creation to its proper end. Where do you need that reminder this morning? Examine your own life, examine your own heart, and ask the Lord to enable you to use your hands for the purpose for which they were created, to give worship and praise to God, not to secure for yourself the objects of worship that you often elevate above God and put yourself under so that you might accomplish your own ends. God calls his people away from idol-making to protect the created order of things, that we are meant to worship God and that we are meant to steward his creation to his glory. He also calls us away from idol-making to protect the covenant relationship that he has entered into with us. Listen again to the second half of verse 5 through verse 6. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In his commentary on Exodus, T. Desmond Alexander says this. He says, having rescued the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, which included enslavement to another God, Yahweh is concerned that the people should never again find themselves in a similar situation. His jealousy for their well-being, for the well-being of the Israelites, expresses itself in anger towards anything that might endanger their future relationship with him. The, the intensity of his wrath at threats to this relationship is directly proportional to the depth of his love. It arises out of the profundity of his covenant love because he feels so deeply he must respond vigorously. The word jealous in uh, English often carries a negative connotation, which is not present in the Hebrew. Perhaps a better idea would be that of zeal, which carries uh, the same Hebrew root as the word jealous. Either way, the point is that God is committed to his people to the degree where he will not tolerate rivals to that relationship. 
He, he is like a, a husband or a wife who cares deeply to protect the union between they and their spouse out of a profound love for them and their well-being. As I said earlier, though God's jealousy isn't mingled with anything negative or sinful, it is born of his own perfection and his covenant loyalty to his people. God wants what is best for us, and he knows that idolatry will ruin us. Thus, he is committed to doing what it takes to keep it at bay. And there are two sides of that commitment. On the first side of that commitment is his, uh, 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 the first side of that commitment of God and his zealous love is his judgment. To deter idolatry, God will judge those who give themselves over to it without repentance to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. Now, on the surface, that phrase appears that God is saying that he will punish innocent generations for the sins of their fathers. But that's not what's being said here. Instead, God is declaring, God is declaring that any generation of his people that gives itself over to idolatrous practices will be subject to God's discipline. God may punish the father's generation or he may punish future generations if those generations choose to walk in the same patterns as their forefathers. Another way of saying it is that the children's generation doesn't get to say, I am only doing this because I learned it from my fathers. No, your generation is accountable for its own choices. You can either do like Josiah would do centuries later when he rejected the ways of his forefathers and turned that nation away from idolatry, or you can do like your fathers and continue in their idolatrous practices. But if you do, know that you are subjecting yourself to the Lord's discipline, who will not allow his people to keep giving themselves over to idolatrous practices. In other words, God is patient, but he ain't playing. I'm going to say it again. God is patient, but he ain't playing. He will eventually respond to those who continue in patterns of idolatrous sin. And I want to be clear here. Walking in the patterns of your forefathers doesn't mean that you are carrying out those patterns in the exact same way your forefathers did. New generations can often create new ways of doing in principle the same things the previous generation did. Jim Crow didn't look like slavery, but it was still racist. I hesitate to say this one because your children are in the room, so I'll, so I'll, I'll adapt it. Watching sexually inappropriate behavior on a screen may not be the same as participating in that act itself, but it's still promoting the exploitation of the human body. The subduing of another people through war, for one's own national purposes, may not be the same as colonization, but it still is destructive of human community. The point isn't whether or not the third or fourth generation of those who hate me are doing the exact same thing as the first generation, but whether or not they are promoting, in principle, the same idolatrous practices. Now, there's a flip side to this judgment, and that is the promise of love or covenant loyalty to those who love the Lord 
and walk in his ways. And pay attention to the numbers in the promise of judgment and the promise of love because they are instructive to us. The promise of judgment is to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The promise of love is to thousands of those that love me and keep my commandment. God's purpose is to lavish his love on thousands, to show covenant loyalty to generation after generation of those to whom he has bound himself in covenant. In this verse, we see what God will tell us generations later in Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And the apostle Peter, speaking, to God's, uh, speaking of God's incredible patience, says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in the coming of our Savior, who is the chief demonstration of this love for God, shown to thousands of those who love the Lord, who put their faith in Him, we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Brothers and sisters, I want to invite us to look at our own lives, to look at the church we are a part of, to look at the broader community of God's people and examine ourselves, asking, are we going to be a Josiah generation? Through the power of the Spirit, and remove the idols from our lives, Individually and corporately? Are we going to be a Josiah generation? Or are we going to tell ourselves that we don't have any idols? That we're not doing what our fathers did? Or that we're just doing what our fathers did? Work for them, it'll work for us. By the power of the Spirit, let's walk in the love of God that was poured into our hearts through the power of the Spirit of God, that love may abound through us and to those around us. Amen, people of God. The call in this is to regard the zeal of the Lord for His people, a zeal that shows itself in God's judgment on those who hate Him who disregard him as God and his steadfast covenant love for those who love him and keep his commandments. If we are in Christ, then that steadfast covenant love is ours today, tomorrow, forever. And it will show itself in God's zeal to keep us from idols. How then do we, who have been loved, show our love to the one who has loved us so steadfastly? We show it by keeping his commands. We show it by keeping his commands. And now that the Spirit is in us, we have the power to keep his commands. And while we will not be perfect in this life, we can, through the Spirit's power, do the good that God calls us to. We can remove the idols from our lives individually. 
we actually can remove the idols from our lives corporately as God's people. We, we can actually remove the, the idols from our lives as the church of God. We, we can identify what those idols are and we can remove them by the power of the Spirit. You, you know how I know that? Because Josiah did it. And that means that you can do it too. That means that we can do it too. When, when we identify idols in our lives individually and corporately, they can be removed. And in keeping with the text, love for God is refusing to walk in any idolatrous practice, past or present. Whether those practices are within your family story, within our national story, or our ethnic story, or your individual life, through the power of the Spirit, you can turn from those practices toward the love of God and the obedience that he calls you to in Jesus Christ. You can love God, and you can love your neighbor as God has called you to. You can lay down patterns of prejudice. You can lay down patterns of selfishness. You can lay down patterns of anger. You can lay down patterns of addiction. You can lay down patterns of lying and the like, because the Spirit of God is in you to break from the idolatrous practices of your past toward the worship of the true and living God. Jesus shed his blood to bring you back to God. Don't turn back to the idols of your past. You can do so because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The steadfast covenant love of God has freed you in Jesus so that you can walk in newness of life. Look at your own life. And where you see the idols, ask God by the power of the Spirit to help you lay them down. And where you see them in the corporate church, ask God by the power of the Spirit to help you speak up and out about them and to work alongside God's people to see them removed. Amen, people of God. Why does God call us away from idol making? He calls us away from it to protect the created order of things where we worship God alone and place ourselves under no other Lord but Him. And he calls us away from idol-making to protect his covenant relationship with us in which we experience his steadfast love for us and give that love back to him by keeping his commandments. For this is the love of God. This is what John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Amen, people of God? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, we pray that you would help us to respond to your steadfast love by loving you. We pray that you would help us indeed to keep your commandments, to worship no other God but you, 
to, to not take our hands and make idols for ourselves that we bow down and worship. Help us, Lord God. Help us, help us by the power of the Spirit to elevate no thing above you. And help us, Lord God, to put ourselves under no thing. Because you have called us to be yours. And you have called us to steward this creation to your glory. So help us to do that by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.